I'm Andy Chrisman, and for the past four decades, I have found myself in the middle of the phenomenon that is the Christian music industry. From my years recording and touring the world as one of the guys in For Him, to my years as a megachurch worship pastor, and for the past 16 years, I've been hosting a radio show called Worship with Andy Chrisman, heard on 500 stations around the world every week. And because of all this, I've been blessed with a unique perspective. I've toured with, recorded with, and become friends with just about everyone that's responsible for the music that plays on Christian radio and sung in churches everywhere. I think that makes me the perfect person to share their stories with you here on One Degree of Andy. In 1980, I was introduced to Christian music when I picked up the Imperials Priority album. And from there, a whole new world opened up for me. And over the next year, I found Amy Grant, The Archers, Second Chapter of Acts, Keith Green, and Steve Camp. But it was Keith and Steve, especially when I heard Fire and Ice, that showed me that CCM could preach to me and not just be great music to listen to. I got to tell you, living in Laodicea still lives in my head and challenges me as much as it did 40 years ago. And Steve, even though we didn't have a personal friendship during our Christian music careers, I can say that I was heavily influenced by you in a personal way through your music and especially through your challenging of the values of the industry in the late 90s. And I want to get to all of that. But I just want to start off this podcast by saying thank you. Thank you for being an influential voice in my life. And with that, I say, welcome to One Degree. And it's great to great to have this face-to-face conversation with you. Wow, Andy, thank you for those kind words. Uh, w- would you like to preach at my funeral at one point? <laughs> uh, <laughs> those are way too deserving of, uh, of compliments, but man, all praise to the Lord and thanks for that encouraging word. Yeah, so I, I, yeah, again, uh, as a teenager growing up in the early 80s, uh, Christian music just, it started to blow my mind. I, I you know, this, I, I was a, you know, I can just remember sitting in my parents' house, uh, in the living room with the stereo and the headphones on like I have now and just <laughs> listening to every piece of it. Um, God, start believing that, yeah. that record was like, wow, this is like, what can't you do with Christian music now? And I know that, <laughs> that, that your music changed quite a bit over the next decade, but uh, I was just yeah. going back and listening to that. I can't find it online anywhere. So I was listening to it on YouTube and it's uh man, it just took me back. I'm like, wow, these songs, I just, they're imprinted in my brain, all of this music. And um, so, so uh, I, I just want to kind of get your history first, as we start here on yeah. how you, how you got into the Christian music scene and what would that, what that was like back in the late seventies and early eighties. Yeah, it actually began for me in the early 70s. Uh, I was a product of the Jesus movement, which started about 68, 69, right up to the early 70s. Uh, I came to the Lord uh, in October of 71, and my dad went home to be with the Lord in June, June 6th to be precise, of 72. From there, I went to Explo 72 in Dallas, and there was 125,000 people, I think it was, in the the stadium there. Billy Graham was speaking. They had several Christian artists. 
I even think Chris Christopherson and Jackson Brown were there. Oh my God. Because uh, they had spiritual overtones and people didn't know how to really define CCM music, contemporary Christian music back in yeah. the day. I got to know second chapter of Acts, Larry Norman, Randy Stonehill, Barry McGuire, Phil Kagey, uh, met the guys from Love Song a few years later, and uh, that kind of began the journey for me. Graduated high school in 73, and I started to write songs because we couldn't find enough contemporary praise music. So growing up in Wheaton, Illinois, the, the holy city, the Vatican II, uh, for Christian organizations, I attended a wonderful church early on, Wheaton Bible Church. Yeah, And we were in the sanctuary from... Friday night all the way through early Sunday morning that we'd have it all cleaned up, uh, you know, in time for worship. But uh, we and myself and a few other musicians got together and we would just have visiting youth groups, people from the high school in, and it became an evangelistic outreach and really talking about street level issues from a biblical worldview. I was 19 at that time. Uh, after graduating high school. And uh, and so some guys said, Steve, you ought to send some of your music in uh, to see if labels would be interested. And I said, oh, are you kidding? That's kind of far-fetched. Well, I, uh, I moved out to LA for about six months. Uh, Scott Wesley Brown was out there and Larry Norman and I had become friends. Uh, and I got a deal with Columbia, uh, well, Mums Records with Columbia. And uh, I had one single called Let My Eyes See What You See. It was uh, released back then. I mean, in pop music back then, they would release a single. And then if it did well, you'd go into the studio while that single was still catching on and record a whole record. So that was so you, you're talking release into pop radio because Christian radio probably wasn't around, right? At that no, point. that's right. This was uh, secular music I had. Well, a secular label, I had done um, a lot of work with mostly non-Christians in the studio. Yeah. And in fact, was starting in Chicago with where I grew up, that area of Wheaton. But I would do um, commercials uh, for different jingle companies. So I did free dent, free dent chewing gum commercials. <laughs> I did McDonald's commercials, wow. all kinds of things. And they said, man, this will help hone your chops. In fact, I remember one time I was going in to do a bank commercial and I was warming up and I started singing and the producer comes on my headphones and he goes, Hey, thank you so much for coming. We won't need you today. <laughs> and okay. I thought, Wait I've heard second. that a couple I, of times in my life. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I learned, uh, the guy that recommended me, he said, it's not you. They just wanted to go with a different kind of sound. I started to get callbacks for that. And I kind of learned studio chops during those early years singing commercials um but here i got the the one single thing and clive davis who has been you know the man behind american idol oh yeah uh behind the scenes and so forth um he had called me and he said listen uh we're we're getting we're changing distribution for mums records and we're i'm gonna pick all the artists up from mums there was steppenwolf on that label Wow. Uh, Albert Hammond, um, you know, different ones. There was a guy named uh, Boomer Castleman and, uh, and myself. And he said to me, he said, but Steve, all your songs, I don't know if you're aware of this, all of your songs mention Jesus name. And he goes, man, you'll have 
much better success if you could change the name of Jesus to baby. Oh, wow. And, uh, and I said, well, I'll write you the best love songs I can, but, uh, you know, I, I want to sing about the Lord too. Well, in those early years, there wasn't a lot of the CCM music being developed. So anyway, I got back my songs and, um, and then took some time to write a little bit more. And I sent a demo to word records in 77 and uh, and that's when my first album came out. You mentioned Start Believing. That was yeah. a year later, year and a half later. I did four albums for Word, and then I went on over uh, to Sparrow Records. If anyone's listening and remembers those blue cassette tapes, uh, yeah. that was sure Sparrow did. Records. Yeah, a lot of my friends were there. I did, I think, about ten records for Sparrow. Fire and Ice was the first album I did for them. Uh-huh. And, uh, and it was great. And then there I went on to Warner Brothers, the Christian music division for them, and did uh, a couple of records for them, then a few independent releases, and then took some time off. And I've been involved in pastoral ministry for a number of years. And I've just been working on a new record over the last literally seven years because I'm not signed to a label. Yeah. As I raise money, I get into the studio. A dear friend of mine, Tim Miner. Oh, is yeah. producing it and uh and so it was it's fun but uh, ended up doing 26 new songs a double album and it's going to be coming out soon uh it's going to be called neighbors in an age of rage and i'm trying to deal with all the woke crt racist blm antifa uh issues going on in society uh been the hardest album i've ever had to write still some wonderful uh, upfront songs about the gospel and so forth. But this album is kind of my Ecclesiastes. It's for the everyday person out there that's trying to say, how do I reconcile everything that's going on in the culture? And I try to write these songs from a biblical worldview. So yeah. when it's done, I'll send it to you. Okay. And uh, I'd love to have your feedback and maybe we could get on again to talk through some of those songs. So man, I'd love man that. that's the last, uh, since 77, that's the last 36 years <laughs> of my life bringing, bringing up to date. And that's how I got my start. 36. How about 46? I have trouble doing the oh, math. 46 years. Yeah. Can you believe that? So tell me who was at Word when they first signed you? Who, who, who were some of the team there? Uh, was uh, Well, in terms of the executives there, a guy named Buddy Huey, yeah. Uh, Stan Mosier, Frank oh, yeah. Edmondson headed up the radio division. Uh-huh. Uh, Chris Christian was there. Yeah, I was going to ask about uh, Chris. Yeah. Cause he was, he was just kind of the beginning of all that stuff. Oh yeah. He, and he was a genius in those early years, man. He really understood it. Well, Gerald McCracken was head of word mm-hmm. music, word publishing. Yeah. And, uh, and you know, Amy Grant and I were signed that same year and, uh, you know, uh, we sold similar amounts that first year, but then she just took off and it was like rocket boosters into the stratosphere. Yeah. And, uh, you know, has been a, a music legend actually, you know, from yeah. that time on, but, uh, great to see her still making music We're we're acquaintances where I consider her a friend, but we don't spend much time together, but obviously a great, great talent. And uh, she continues to make wonderful music. Um, in those early years, she was one of the 
the heroes along with Larry Norman and Randy Stonehill. In fact, Larry was the man who mentored me to teach me the craft of songwriting. So, you know, we just had wonderful times. And I don't know if you remember this, Andy, but you remember the Christian music of the Rockies back in Estes Park? Did you oh, ever yeah. go to that? Yeah, I sure did. I heard from Danit Farrow just the other day. She's in Nashville with Cam Floria. I went starting there in the 70s, and I went for 25 years in a row wow. uh, to Christian artists of the Rockies, you know, two, 3,000 artists uh -huh. and established yeah. artists and yeah, yeah. worship leaders, uh -huh. just great memories. So a lot of those things that aren't around now uh, were then, and boy, what a great time to pour the concrete with so many gifted men and women mm -hmm. uh, back in those days. Yeah, so, so, many many yeah, so many people got their start, folks. Yeah, so many people got their start. So many, so many people got their start. Oh yeah, at in Estes Park, and just yeah, about everybody. Much. It's interesting. Just about everybody I have on the podcast, there are all of these little, um, uh, these little touch points that we seem to all have in common. It's either Estes Park or it's a compilation record that we were all on, or the yeah. Young Messiah tour, or you know, different industry executives that you know that kind of help guide our career. And so, yeah. but yeah, Estes Park just keeps coming up over and over and over again. That was just, you know, without things like that, and it was, it was, it, again, like you said, those things don't really don't exist anymore to, yeah. to really help. Uh, I was in a group called Truth back in the, oh. back in the eighties. And, uh, you know, there's nothing like that going on because I did 340 shows a year yeah. with Truth. And you talk about honing your craft and. And being able to get out there and and uh, figure out who you are as an artist, if this is really what you want to do, and uh, yeah, so some of those things are missing now. Yeah, I want to ask you about because I feel like just from a listener and as a fan of your music, yeah. that uh, there was a there was a, a a turn in a little bit when you got from. It feels like when you went from word to sparrow in the content of your lyrics to where they and I said this in the intro. It was more than just really great Christian music. Now, all of a sudden, I felt like you were challenging me uh, almost on every song. Um, again, just in the car today, listening to Fire and Ice, going, wow, you don't, you don't hear lyrics like this anymore. Very pointed, yeah. very, uh, and, you know, and I've read, I've, I've listened to several of your interviews over the last couple of years and, and read some stuff that you've done, um, you know, where you talk about how, uh, you you definitely have you look back on a lot of your writing and go okay uh, you know I know a lot more now than I knew then but you can really see the difference in where you went songwriting what was there some sort of thing that happened in your life or or a road that you had traveled that that started to change your songwriting in those days great question and yes there was uh, my late friend Keith Green. I was down at Last Days Ministries and had visited him. Just This was just about four weeks before he went home to be with the Lord. Oh, man. And uh, I loved his song, Asleep in the Light, probably yeah. my favorite Keith song he ever wrote. And so I went in there, and he says, Steve, most people don't like that song. He goes, why do you like it? And I talked to him about the urgency of it, um, just the the call of it. And I was playing him some of the songs on fire and ice that I'd written. He goes, man, this is great. What's going on with you? Uh, and I hadn't recorded fire and ice. I was just writing. 
Well, here uh, we went down the road and had a chance to spend a day with Leonard Ravenhill. Yeah. And Leonard gave me a copy of his book, Why Revival Terries. It's such a great, uh, great book. If none of you have read it, uh, pick it up, download it on Kindle. Excellent, excellent book. Leonard was discipled by A.W. Tozer and really was a strong prophetic voice well here uh i left keith's place i was heading up to denver in fact i was on my way to england and i was there in denver doing a series of concerts just for that weekend i was coming back from a i believe it was a friday night uh or no saturday night uh concert and i was getting out of my car at a marriott hotel there uh, and two guys, I turned around and two guys had guns and put one in my head and one in my mouth and said, give us all your money. Or you're going to die. Wow. And they thought I had a lot of cash on me. Apparently they were at the concert and my tour manager obviously handled all the finances. I didn't touch that. Well, here they took my watch and so forth. They were pretty angry. So they beat me up pretty good. I, uh, walked into the lobby of the hotel and I collapsed. I had gotten cut pretty good. I was bleeding and I woke up in the ambulance and they took me to the hospital. And, you know, the guys were trying to keep it lighthearted. They were like, man, who did you beat up with your face tonight? You know, it was <laughs> one of those kind of things. Yeah. Well, I got, got back to the hotel that next morning, called my friends back in Nashville they reported it to the church that I was a part of back then. And, uh, and so, you know, the doctor said, listen, you, you uh, need to just relax for a few weeks. You can't be doing any heavy singing. Well, I had several stitches in. And so anyway, I was reading that book by Leonard Ravenhill and the Lord just used it to pierce my heart. And every song pretty much every song on fire and ice had a connection back to that book. And, uh, so that was a marked event. I remember calling Keith on the phone, Andy, and, uh, and he said, Steve, you don't sound so good. I, I could barely talk. And I said, well, Keith, I was beat up last night after the concert and in his usual sensitive way, he said, man, that's fantastic. Did you have a chance to share the gospel <laughs> with these guys? Yeah, that sounds and like I him. Said, I said, you know, Keith, it just didn't occur to me at the time. He goes, well, man, I don't have time to feel sorry for you. You need to get your life right with the Lord. And he hung up the phone. Wow. And I thought, oh, man. So I called my mom in Wheaton. My dad had been home with the Lord. I said, mom, she goes, you sound terrible. What happened? I said, I got beat up last night after the concert. She goes, you okay? And I said, well, yeah, it could have been a lot worse. And she said, you know, I'm so glad you called, Steve. Could you pray for me? I've been through some trials recently. And I could use some prayer from you. And I said, well, mom, did you just hear what I told you? I got beat up. And, and she said, yeah, but she said, we believe God is sovereign. He allowed that to touch your life. And she goes, if I may say so, quit feeling sorry for yourself and get on serving the Lord. Uh, she goes, I didn't raise you to be a wimp. I raised you to be a man after God's own heart. And you don't learn that through the ease of life. You learn it through the trials of life. And I said, what is wrong with you? Did he just get off the phone with Keith or something or what? You know, <laughs> I didn't know. Long story short, it was during that three-week period I started to write quite prolifically about that experience, but more importantly, what it meant to be fire and ice, got out of Revelation, hot or cold, 
what did it mean to live a no compromised life? And uh, that album was written in a short period of time and and uh, was the first album I did for Sparrow. I wanted to be over at Sparrow. Billy Ray Hearn and I became mm -hmm. friends. Bill Hearn, his son that ran the company, Peter York, an excellent A&R man at the time. But a lot of my friends were over there, uh, and, you know, and Keith was there for the longest time. But all, if I can say it this way, this is not putting down anyone at word, but it just, for me at least, Andy, it was like all the ministry artists were at Sparrow. Yeah, There was a certain community of artists that had a similar passion uh, for the Lord. And yeah, Billy Ray be, really fostered that over there, didn't he? He fostered it. And you know what? Again, sometimes at word, people would say, you can't say that. It's too strong. It's whatever. Yeah. And with Billy Ray, it was like, bring it. Don't compromise it. Don't water it down. The bolder, the better. And uh, so it just felt like a a kindred heart there. And so that began the journey of writing more exhortive lyrics. Uh, and when Keith died, um, I went down to the memorial service there. In fact, I was with Carmen, who's now with the Lord in mm -hmm. his apartment, uh, visiting him in Tulsa when he said, man, I'm so sorry. Did you hear about Keith? And I said, what do you mean? And I had just been talking to a producer, Keith Thomas, who's brilliant even yeah. to this day. Yeah. I was honored to work with Keith. And he goes, no, Keith Green, he was killed this morning in a plane crash. Boy, you, you could have bowled me over with a feather. I couldn't believe it. And had called down there, went to the memorial service, met with Leonard again. And some of the guys there, they said, Steve, we feel like um, whatever Keith had at a strong level, that mantle's being passed over to you. I was just going to ask if you felt like the mantle that Keith was carrying was passed on yeah. to you, because it really felt like to me as a listener and uh, that that was a, that you were able to carry on what God had put on his heart. Yeah. And he did it. Obviously the Lord has his Peters and his Phillips and mm -hmm. his Johns and, you know, James's, his was a much more uh, famous, explosive audience that he, the Lord allowed him in a short period of time to minister to. Mine was a smaller audience, uh, but still uh, that message, that message of exhortation uh, simply mean, here's what scripture teaches, let's live up to it. You know, the three E's, edification, encouragement, exhortation, edification the building up of the body, encouragement, uh, that needed word that we all need to keep on for the Lord, but exhortation uh, to stir up that fallow ground. And that's where Hosea came in, stir up your fallow ground, you know, plow up your fallow ground. And that was, um, you know, began that journey there, the song Living and Laodicea. In fact, when you mentioned it earlier, I have been getting so many comments on that recently, just unbeknown to me of people saying, uh, could you do a live version of that or sing something on Facebook of a more organic way of that song? So that might be appearing here soon, mm. but ah, those great. songs, those songs kept on and, and the follow-up album to that was shake me to wake me yeah. about personal revival. You know, mm -hmm. I need to be shaken, um, you know, and stranger to holiness, I believe was the first single on that record. Yeah, and great song. People were like, what do you mean stranger to holiness? Don't you mean a friend of holiness? I said, no, I, 
I'm a sinner saved by grace, and holiness is something that is imputed to us as Christians, not that is inherent in us. Uh, all of sin fallen short of the glory of God. So each of these albums since then, Andy, kind of tell a story of spiritual growth, discipleship in the Lord, and so forth. And and uh, that was the incident, though, the single incident that kind of marked a change in my life coming from the good folks at Word Records into now the spiritual journey of a longer relationship with Sparrow Records. So how was that received uh, once you kind of make that change lyrically and just the, what you were representing in your albums? How was that received like in, as far as Christian music industry and radio success and those kind of things that you kind of depend on to, you know, to draw your crowds and be able to have a place, have a, have a platform. Yeah. You know what? I have to say it was received initially very well. I mean, coming off the heels of Keith's home going to the Lord mm -hmm. and then people wanting a voice, you know, to be there and especially singing at churches and universities, primarily Christian colleges uh, young people were wanting a voice uh, that wasn't buying into the culture, similar, I guess, to today. Uh, but yeah. as that kind of that journey in, in uh, you know, this will take us through the 80s, really, uh, and the early part of the 90s, um, you know, people were then saying, man, why, why can't you just lighten up? You know, <laughs> I remember... Um, I remember there was a speaker at the GMA, the Gospel Music Association, one year. Now, I was never in favor of the Dove Awards. I stood against that for years. Uh, so they made me the producer after Bill Gaither was done with it of the Sunday evening worship event. And we took it from about 300 people each year to about 3,000 people. And uh, they thought it would be my uh, undoing. They thought, well, Bill couldn't take it anywhere. Surely Steve can't. And this will, Steve Camp cannot and so will this yeah. will be used to silence him and uh and it became their number one event and you know i financed it we spent about 10 to twelve thousand dollars a year yeah uh and they spent hundreds of thousands on showcases with different labels in fact one of the guys at word said we're spending one hundred fifty thousand dollars on the showcase at the ryman auditorium for uh our music artists you spent ten thousand we don't even show up in the surveys and your survey blew away everyone. It was the number one rated event for seven years in a row, even over the Dove Awards. Wow. And I thought, man, why are we, why are we being a poor imitation of the Grammys? Why don't we do something a little more radical than that? And it was always met with consternation. So it was during that time, people went from thanks from the strong message to dude, lighten up or get over <laughs> yourself. Or why, why do you think you're holier than the next guy? And I said, I don't. In fact, it's anything but. It's why I wrote Stranger to Holiness. By the yeah. way, I have to give some kudos. My dear friend, Rob Frazier, uh, we co-wrote probably, I don't know, at least two or 300 songs, most of them recorded throughout the years. And uh, many of them recorded uh, and, you know, I've never had a, a songwriting friend like that. I mean, uh, you know, for in my life, it was a McCartney-Lennon kind of partnership or an Elton John-Bernie Taupin partnership. Yeah. Anytime we got together, there was always a productive time. And I love Rob to this day. Uh, we uh, 
you know, on this new album, we've written three songs, I believe, for it. It's great to see that spark still there. But he was part of that journey in the writing aspect of things. Where it came as a pinnacle, Andy, uh, was the album Justice. Yeah. And that album had a song on it called Don't Tell Them Jesus Loves Them Till You're Ready to Love Them Too. Mm. And, and also a song called Do You Feel Their Pain? And I had gotten involved. This was about 1987. Uh, I had uh, just prior to that, I had gotten involved in the AIDS issue. It was brand new. I had the privilege of meeting Dr. Robert Redfield, who was involved recently in the COVID aspect, disagreed with Fauci, a man after my own heart. <laughs> and uh, But I met a man named Shepard Smith, not the Shepard Smith of Fox Broadcasting, but a yeah. man who was involved in the AIDS issue. Both of these guys mentored me on that issue. And that album, Justice, primarily was talking about loving the disenfranchised people, what it meant to love your neighbor. And this album, this new album is called Neighbors in an Age of Rage, and it carries on the follow-through part two of the Justice record. People didn't know how to respond to it because um, I tried not to wrap it up in a neat little bow. I think one of the things of Christian music throughout the years, it tries to answer every question in a three-and-a-half-minute song rather than let the issue just live out there for a while. Let it percolate a little bit. Um, we're not told to kind of tie things up in a neat little bow at the end of the day. I think that's where it, it, it leads to fake Christianity. Um, you know, all things work together for good to those that love God and are called according to his purpose, Romans 8, 28. But we don't find out why yeah. until Romans 8, 29, which is, that we've been predestined to be conformed to the image of the sun. That's why it works out for good. Not that it all works for our good, meaning, oh, we've had a rough day and now it's a great day. And a lot of people in Christianity and in Christian music have this dual philosophy. If I'm having a bad day, it's from Satan. If I'm having a great day, it's from the Lord. Actually, he's sovereign over all things. So whether it's a trial or whether it's a time of blessing, it's all from the hands of God. Mm -hmm. And uh, and so that album, Justice, was kind of a pivotal record for me because it was trying to deal with real-life cultural issues. And I remember going to universities where we would have 2,000, 3,000 people in the past. And during the concert, I would talk about people that had AIDS. And I would simply say there's no cure for HIV, but there is in the shed blood of Jesus Christ for SIN. And surprisingly, Andy, five, six hundred people a night, when I would start to sing some of these songs, do you feel their pain and so forth, uh, would get up and walk out of the audience. And they were shouting at me and calling me the most crude names. And, you know, um, thinking that I embraced homosexuality and that was, was driving the passion. In fact, it wasn't. I had a little phrase back then that said, God's holiness not compromised, yet his mercy not restrained. So we don't embrace, as it's sadly as it is today, many churches, gay lifestyles, LGBTQIA plus lifestyles. It's foreign from scripture, but God's mercy should not be restrained from people that need a savior. Amen. And so both are true. Holiness not compromised. Mercy not restrained. And back then, I tell you, it was brutal what was going on. And uh, 
you know, people would just show up before the concert, picket events, different things. Mm. I didn't quite know how to handle this. And uh, so albums that followed the Justice record, uh, the one I believe, if my memory serves me correct, it was Consider the Cost, uh, which I uh, dedicated to John MacArthur. His book, The Gospel According to Jesus, had come out. I had just met John, as it was with Revival Terry's with Fire and Ice. Consider the cost. Every song flowed out of John's excellent book on the gospel and what it yeah. meant to have a great faith in the Lord. So all these records were really born out of wonderful pastors and great past uh, pastors that were, you know, part of church history that I just consumed in my heart and life. So I wanted to to bring those issues out. But MacArthur, you know, I, I'm still praying for John that he would believe one day that drums are sanctified. <laughs> Uh, but he used to call me Keith Green with theology is how oh, John wow. would refer to wow, me. That's, and so that like was that. A, a, a positive thing. Yeah. But all through that, those moments, and I'm sorry to have been long on this, but those are the moments that kind of define uh, life that went on during that time for me as a Christian, as an artist, and as one dedicated to biblical ministry. So you bring up a great point, a great segue here, because I want to get to this. Just uh, being in the industry in the nineties, I, you know, it was, it was the attitude was that you were labeled as kind of a renegade, someone, you know, pushing it back against the system. And yeah, I'll, I'll, I remember when your 107 theses came out and, uh, I, I, I feel like I have a memory of it really exploding during GMA week, uh, one year. Yeah. Uh, what ninety six, ninety seven, what uh, somewhere came, in the late late nineties. Yeah, they. You're reading my mind here, uh, Andy. The they came out October thirty first, which was Reformation Day back in the day when Luther had released his ninety five theses. Uh, I came out with one hundred and seven theses on that same day, calling for reformation within Christian music, Christian publishing. Uh. It started to catch on. I remember uh, uh, being invited to minister to some of the pro golfers at the Masters Golf Tournament uh, in Augusta. And I got to know several of the pro golf players and uh, different ones and just had a great time of fellowship in the Lord. I remember seeing uh, Toby uh, and different ones from DC Talk. Uh, in the pro shop, and they said, "Well, man, you got us talking. I'll have it's all we talked about on the tour yeah. bus getting here." That was everybody. And that was all of us, man. It was crazy. And the sad thing was, Andy was during that time being in Nashville. Um, I would be in the hardware department, say, picking up a hammer or some tool I needed for a home repair, or whatever. And I was in there with my my two of my oldest sons but then they were little max and johnston and they would say dad we think someone is talking about you and they were swearing about me dropping the f-bomb taking the name of the lord in vain i couldn't believe it and these were people that were christians within the ccm industry i walked around and went into the island they you know when you get caught gossiping about someone you know how that goes yeah we've all done it we've all been at the end of it and and uh, they said, Steve, we're sorry. And I said, really, do you hate me that much? I mean, I thought everyone was worth their opinion and we could have it from a biblical worldview. Strangely enough, 
a lot of the pop artists I'd worked with throughout the years and great musicians, great studio players, whether they were from the band Toto or Chicago or just different great players, they were showing up in the recording studio, different studios, and shooting me a little note that said, man, thanks for taking a stand because we see it in pop music. Uh But in Christian music, they had the 107 theses posted up, Andy, with a big round red, uh, you know, line through yeah. it with yeah. a zero that, and they were using swear words on it to describe it. Incredible. After I had left Sparrow Records and I'd come out with that, um, with that uh, theses, I had done a few records, Mercy in the Wilderness and Heaven by Storm for the Christian division of Warner Brothers. Had a chance to work with one of my musical heroes, Michael Omardian. Oh, yeah. Good for and, him. And uh, yeah. just brilliant man. I, I still can't believe that he allowed me in the studio with him. <laughs> he was just amazing. But it was coming out of that time. I, and I think I can say this without malice in my heart at all. I had called up the distribution arm uh, that with EMI Christian uh, to order some product. Uh, to take on the road for concerts. They Uh would give artists a discount. Right. And then you could offer them. I was going through a time where I was adapting Keith's uh, motif where we would offer the CDs for whatever people could afford. If they couldn't afford anything, they could take one for free. It was a stewardship issue, not a sales issue. I left the agency that I'd been with for several years and said, no more honorariums, no more ticket sales. Everything's on an offering. Everyone gets in for free. Well, this this led to such consternation. I had no idea because I've never listen. I've never been a gold album selling artist. I've never been a platinum selling artist. But for some reason, the stances and the message was greater than my artistry was. If I could say it that way, in terms of just visibility. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And and so what happened was I called the distribution arm to get a lot of my Sparrow product was wanting to get just, you know, 500 units or a thousand units to take out on concerts that month. And one of my buddies who worked in the warehouse said, Steve, I have some bad news. We're all out of them. And I went, wait a second. I just, you know, called you guys like three months ago and you had 10,000 units of this and 5,000 of this and 20,000 of this. I know that you haven't sold that much. Pardon me. I'm sorry. I have a little thing in my eye there. Uh, and, and they said, well, no, it's not that we sold all those. A word came down from the heads of Sparrow that we're to have nothing to do with you in the future because of your stance on these theses. Wow. And we were told to throw out all of your CDs, which they did. So it became wow. a difficult time um, where literally I had promoters in large churches call me and said, we have to cancel your event. And I said, why is that? Or is there not any interest? They said, no, we have a lot of interest. But promoters would say, if I have you in, they were getting calls from some big time managers and agents. And I won't mention their names or the artists they represent. But they said, if, we've ha- if, we, don't, if we have you in, we don't get the large tour coming up with XYZ artists. That's the way it and works. I said, why are they threatened? By little old me, I honestly didn't understand this, but they, you talk about cancel culture. I experienced it in Mm. spades and it was by the grace of God that he allowed me to continue on for a season. Two years later, I joined 
the team out at Grace Community Church with John MacArthur as an associate pastor there for about a year and a half, came back to Nashville and, uh, you know, went through some difficult times and then, um, you know, have been involved in pastoral ministry at a few churches around Nashville. Uh, but then later on here in 2009, became the lead pastor of uh, the Cross Church here in Palm City, Florida, where I've served for 14 years. So that's been the journey. Now, after all these years, the Lord's allowed me to record again. And uh, and I hope people will respond uh, to it, hopefully, uh, in uh, in this season of life that we're all in as a nation and so forth. I know that it will make some people angry. But hopefully it'll encourage some just as much. So that that's yeah. the sweeping thing. But yeah. that was the other incident, Andy, just what you had mentioned of the 107 theses. By the way, I wasn't trying to better Martin Luther. I just had more subjects to cover than papal indulgences. So well, it was, <laughs> I'm telling you, as an artist that was in the middle of it, um, and, I, you know, for him was not at the peak of our career at that time. Um, so, you know, you're already starting to think some of those things as you read them and go, just when you talk about the DC talk guys, you go, it makes you think it makes you start to ask questions that you probably weren't asking before when you're, you know, with the height of your popularity. Um, yeah. and, uh, I, I don't want to go through all of them today on this, but, uh, what, where can people find, I mean, all, all you have to do is Google your name and 107 theses and it's, it's the, everywhere, but is there, is it at your website? Is there a place where people can go see that? And read it. You know, I think it's I think best. it's required reading for anyone who is interested in the history of Christian music. Yeah, thanks for that. It's uh, it's on my blog, um, and it's also as you said, Google it and put in 107 theses. Uh, I need to reprint those. In fact, I really need to update it uh, based on a lot of the stuff that's going on in in culture right yeah. now. Uh, but you know, uh, man, I. Uh, truth for him some of those roots that you're speaking about in your life man i tell you uh, did you know a guy back in truth named jim gibson oh i don't he was he, he lived out in aurora illinois and he was part of truth for a while uh -huh. it might have been in between the times that you were there uh but uh you know, I always called Point of Grace for her. Uh, as <laughs> so, opposed did, to, so did we. <laughs> and, yeah, I, I believe it, as opposed to for him. But uh, do you remember, man, if I can bring up something, do you remember uh, at the wooden, beautiful auditorium in New Jersey and Asbury yeah. Park uh -huh. that we, we all sang at one year? I mean, I think the AC went out. Uh, oh my gosh yes that's on the coast this? yeah it's like ocean city right ocean city there you yeah. go uh-huh yeah and uh man i had done a few gigs there uh one of the years i was the only white artist on and they had uh bb and cc and i uh -huh. think take six was on that night yeah. and then i got talking to this lovely uh gal black gal backstage for about 40 minutes and uh we just had the most lovely talk. And I said, um, well, can I ask you, what do you do? And she goes, well, I sing. And I said, oh, and she goes, I'm singing with BB and CC tonight. And I said, oh, are you one of their background singers? And she looked at me and she said, you really don't know who I am. Do I know you? who and you're going to say. No. I know who you're going to say. And it was Whitney Houston. Incredible. Yeah. And when she smiled, that big smile, and she goes, Steve, most I wear 
uh, beautiful wigs. I have shorter hair. It's easy to take care of. And we had a good laugh over it and uh, couldn't have been kinder. But all those years of doing those things in Estes Park and all, man, it gave wow. us a camaraderie, didn't it? It really did. We have a you common know? story. And and again, that's, you know, not, I don't want to belabor the point of the, of the things that you wrote in the late nineties, but it did in a, in a weird way, unify those that, because uh, go back to those truth days. Yeah. We, we, we cut our teeth. So the four of us and for him, that's where we started. We met each other in truth, did a thousand concerts together in truth before we ever did a concert is for him. And every night, one thing I really appreciate about Roger Breland was there uh, was a call to Christ every night. Yeah. It didn't matter where we were. We could be in an outside mall we could be at a bass rodeo a bass fishing tournament we could be you know at one of the biggest churches in america and we would always do an altar call and give people a chance to come yeah. to know jesus and that's what we carried on and for him we didn't care where we were we were going to do an altar call and so when when someone like you that we really respected and looked up to uh began to question what was going on in the in the in the Christian recording industry and some pointing out some of the things that, you know, probably shouldn't be happening. Uh, we take notice of that and just go, wow, this is, you know, we're, I think yeah. we're on the same page here and, and we need to, and you know, you, I, I think you're pretty prophetic because when that came out, it was not maybe four or five years later that the industry really started to crumble from within. And yeah, it did. It really did, and I remember I was I was influenced by that because God spoke to me in right around 1999 that there was something else He had for me. The Christian music wasn't my my greatest calling, and and began to work in my life to extract me out of the Christian music scene. And I feel like all those things are related. I do, yeah. uh, and it's so many people that I talk to on this podcast. Everybody has a Everybody has a, a journey in Christian music, a beginning and an end. There's yep. a career arc. Everybody's a little bit different, but almost everybody yeah. has the same type of story that they were either released from their deal, uh, they couldn't get radio play anymore, or they went through a serious life change, you know, that that caused them radio not to play them anymore, or the, a record label to drop them, or in your case. Um, a, a serious disagreement on how the business should be run and what our focus should be. And I think all those things together just started to unravel the status quo in Christian music. And so for that, I look back and go at the time it was difficult because, you know, oh. okay, what are we going to do next? And you mentioned that, you know, earlier, where do we go from here? But those things have to happen. They yeah. have to, there has to be an ending for for yeah. these journeys and there and then god what god does he takes it and he you know he starts all over again and then the worship industry is born worship music starts driving everything and you know what that's going to be cyclical as well something will happen there well it'll it'll completely transform i think that that time is probably drawing pretty close but uh yeah. that's what i see in scripture and what i see in the life of 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 christianity is everything does this Everything repeats. You read the Bible, the stories repeat over and yeah. over again with different with different context, and the same thing happens. I think in 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 you know in Christian music that it, it goes to a certain point, and God says, "Enough, we're not going to do this anymore. We're, I'm going to start a new thing over here." And so 
Uh, I just have to say, again, thank you for your music. Thank you for your testimony. Thank you for your boldness. Oh, wow. I am, I am uh, impacted by that, and my, a lifelong impact for me. So, uh, and again, I don't, I don't want to, uh, I don't want to park on that. I just, I think I just needed to say some things to you and get them out of my heart because uh, there are very few people that I'll talk to on this podcast that will have that type of of depth in in uh, just your theology and what you brought to the table and and where you are now and what you're continuing to do. Oh, thank you, my brother. Well, I tell you, um, some of us need to have a, a reunion concert uh, or something that we could do in Nashville. It would be so much fun. Uh, I don't can you get together the for him guys? Oh, I, yeah, I've got their numbers. I think I could put something together. <laughs> <laughs> it would be great. I, uh, you know, one of, one of the things that when I approached Tim Miner, uh, seven years ago, when I started to write for this record. Yeah. And if people don't I, know Tim, if people don't know Tim, Tim is a, is a thread through the history of Christian music as well. I mean, just the projects he's worked on and the artists that he's worked with. He is, yeah. he is legendary. Yeah, incredible. Uh, well, one of his key things was at the age of 19, Stevie Wonder signed him to Motown. Yeah. And if you close your eyes and you listen to Tim sing, it could be Stevie sitting in the room. Uh, easily the most gifted musician all the way around. He plays drums, bass, guitar, keys, sings. Uh, I mean, really just multi-gifted. My wife, Cindy, uh, on this record, she's a graduate of Juilliard. Oh, wow. And uh, and so uh, Tim said, have her bring her violins next time you come to Nashville. So we did. And she started to play. He had her stack 21 tracks of violins and then violas. And then we were at we were needing a cellist and uh, we were at Apple picking up some chords and stuff one night. She carried her violin. They you know, all violinists carry their baby yeah, around with them right. everywhere they go. <laughs> well, this this gentleman came up uh, and uh, Maridash, and he, he was great. Uh, where he came over and started talking to Cindy. He goes, "What do you do?" And so we got talking, and then I came over and talked with them. And he said, "Well, I'm a cello player. I graduated from Vanderbilt." And I said, "Are you any good?" And he goes, "I think I'm pretty good." So we gave him our business card, got back to Florida after some sessions. She called him up via uh, Zoom and uh, auditioned him and said, and she said, man, you are great. So next time we are in town, uh, they put on all the violin parts on probably 13, 14 songs on this thing. And a couple of sons of mine are gifted in rap and in freestyling. They did some oh, work wow. on this, That's some so cool. singing. And I have another son in uh, country music as well, and uh, a daughter that sings, a couple of daughters that sing beautifully. So this really became a family project, and Tim was down for it. I mean, he was just like, Steve, this is so great. Uh, and now I'm trying to figure out, Andy, how do you release it? I'm not signed to a label. What's the way to go? The whole industry has changed. I feel like I'm 19 again, uh, figuring out how do you get this thing out? So, man, if you can send me the the protocol on what to do if these I had, days. If I had the magic bullet, I'd give it to you. 
I promise. <laughs> I know it's crazy, <laughs> but you know what, man, I tell you what you mentioned something, um, that I think is important for us to deal with. Worship music is so vital for all of us in our lives. Mo so much of what you all recorded, uh, my album mercy in the wilderness was a worship album. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the, several records have come out that the crazy thing is though today is that worship has become its own form of entertainment and people are paying big bucks. I saw a couple of worship artists where the ticket average price was like 50 bucks to get in. But if you wanted to be in the gold circle seating down front, it was 150 bucks. And then you could meet the artists ahead of time. And I thought, here again, money is the leading venue ticket thing. They're charging money to come to a venue to worship the Lord and going to large churches, paying money as a ticket price to hear music about the Lord. Now, lest anyone think I'm being too critical, let me tell of my own repentance in this. One night I was at a concert up north and a good sized church, a few thousand folks, and I was the last one leaving the auditorium with the, the pastor and the promoter. And this family was sitting outside, brother, a, a husband, a wife, and four kids. And they said, are you Steve? And I said, yes. They said, man, thanks for the concert. We really appreciate it on those moments that we could hear. And I said, what are you talking about? And he goes, well, we couldn't afford the ticket price to come into the church. And we love your music. So they propped open a door and we could hear sometimes and not hear other times. And we have not large incomes, so if I bought a couple of CDs, a few T-shirts, and then paid for ticket prices to come in, we just can't afford that. Well, I tell you, man, I went back to my hotel room, and literally the Spirit of God broke my heart. I sobbed and sobbed and sobbed, and I thought, the message has been strong, um, but has the manner in which I presented that, the methods they were clearly not honoring the Lord. And I thought, my goodness, what damage have I done to people's lives by making money a prerequisite for ministry, even for people? I mean, think about it, Andy, what I, what I was doing, and I know you can relate to this. I'm sorry, my dog's in the background. Uh, it's, a, it's, a common, it's a common but a, a common thing on this podcast, for sure. Yeah. Let me, uh, let me step outside. I think they're seeing okay. a a uh, an animal out there or something but here what had happened was was i thought what a hypocrite i've been profiting off the people of god wanting them to come to a local church and hear songs of praise and worship hear the gospel hear the word and and then charging them where people were prohibited from getting in because of dear families like that one that could not afford the ticket price that that's what affected me to write the 107 theses uh, i wasn't talking about other artists i was talking about my own sinfulness of sin and i i my heart bleeds today for worship artists that are going back to that same motif handing out the awards charging thousands upon i, I mean i got a call from a pastor friend of mine He's a charismatic man. I'm a Calvinist. We're living proof that Whitfield and Wesley can get along. <laughs> and uh, he has a church of about 2,500 or so up in upstate New York.
he tried some artists that are not really popular by today's standards, but they were asking twenty, thirty thousand dollars for a one night concert still now. And I I couldn't believe it. And I thought, Lord, what has happened here? Are we like you're saying, I liked your analogy, this stuff comes around full circle and we're back to it again. And uh, may the Lord reform us and revive us. Certainly our government needs reformation, but the church needs revival again. If we can entertain people with worship music to the one triune God and charge an astronomical amount of money so people get to sing praise and worship to the Lord, but yet my friends in China and the underground church are just happy to have a chapter of the Bible um, in Muslim countries where they're in the most deadly prisons around the globe, where a friend of mine in, in uh, the Soviet Union was put in jail for four years for singing one Christian song on the streets in Leningrad. And I think, what have we done with American Christianity again? And again, I'm not trying to judge these folks. I can only look at my own heart and, and say I was subject to the same compromise. I praise God for his grace that he still allows me to speak for him at all. I don't deserve that privilege. But Andy, what's going on, brother? I mean, here we are again, and, and worship now has become an industry rather than a ministry to, to the Lord himself. And so thank, thank you for letting me say that. I mean, what, yeah. what is your thought? Well, I, I have a lot of the same thoughts as you do. And, um, you know, I, being, being an artist in the past and living through the end of that career, becoming a worship pastor, uh, being a part of a mega church, and then now being out on my own, I do a lot of consulting and coaching and mentoring to worship pastors across the country. The one thing I see are, yeah. are worship pastors that are, that feel like they're aging out in their thirties. And early forties, oh and I'm like, man, you're just now getting going. I mean, think of the wisdom that you have and what you've learned, but that that you should be able to offer your church and and the people that you lead in worship. I mean, I, I think some of the best worship leaders in the world are in their fifties and sixties because yeah. of the life that they've lived and what they've seen God do in those years of their lives. And so, uh, the the one thing that I that I it really hurts my heart is that so much of worship is is being produced and driven by a younger generation, not that they don't deserve a place at the table, but that the theology, the life, um, life experience, you know, how, how much have you had to worship God through pain and suffering? Yeah. And, and, and wondering if God is even going to show up this time, you know, yeah. have you lived the life of David? You know, um, have you, have you That's been right. through the, the trials that, that uh, someone in their fifties and sixties has been through. So uh, I think that's why, you know, how much of the music that we're singing in churches today are going to be around in a hundred years. Yeah. You know, probably not. Well, a lot. we, we used to call them back in our day. God is my girlfriend songs. Yeah. You yeah. know, and, uh, and unfortunately today it's hard to tell what's genuine and what's not unless uh -huh. you process it all through the onion skin of scripture mm -hmm. and but, you know i'm not a fundamentalist uh but you know you think someone asked me the other day what's a great definition of worship and i said you know leviticus 10 nadab and abihu you know they went in 
they did not do what God had commanded them. And they offered strange fire to the Lord. And the Lord executed them on the spot. Moses saying to Aaron, they were Aaron's sons, but Moses saying to them two other things. He said, not only did they not do what God had commanded them, but he said, when Moses said to Aaron, when you come before me, the Lord, I must be regarded as holy. And then secondly, before all the people, I must be glorified. Um, so biblical worship today should be based on the truth of scripture, the holiness of God and the glory of God. If we get those three things wrong, it doesn't matter how great the band is, right? Yeah, that's right. I mean, we're missing it and praise God for some great musicians out there and gifted writers and, uh, and so forth. But, oh man, I just wish one of these guys out there that, uh, are leading the pack on this aspect of biblical worship or on worship music would care enough to say this far and no farther farther and put it all on the line. So one of my heroes in scripture is Kenaniah from first uh, ah. Chronicles chapter 15, who's described as the head Levite, but also the most skilled singer in all of Israel. And yeah, that's right. It, it It's a great picture of, of, uh, understanding the word and but also being very skilled at a high level and so you know i'm grateful at 20 years old i was given an opportunity to get up on yeah. stage and sing and lead people and uh you know I, I so i'm not against uh you know don't hear me say that i'm against young people leading in worship or even being worship pastors but there have no, to I'm be with you. there have to be kenanias that are older more seasoned that can say, hey, you need to watch out for this. You need to do this a little bit more. Um, here's what I've learned in my 50 years of of serving in the temple and and uh, ministering to God's people and ministering to the Lord himself. And so when we extract, this is what I'm seeing in the whole worship industry, is extracting the older voices in favor of the new voices. And they can coexist. And yes, it, shouldn't, it shouldn't be too extreme one way or the other for uh for a variety of reasons and and i think you know for for worship music to be the way it's intended to be we need guys like you steve we need well you know, and i we was gonna to just say, continue just continue to preach and to uh exhort and to um and to walk in and and just come in and discipline and say hey guys we got to take a look at this and so i think conversations like this are healthy not to say you know, yeah. we got to start all over with worship music. I don't think that's the the issue at all. Um, no, that's right. But, but we have to we have to have some older leaders come in and that uh, can have a, a be a voice of reason and be a voice of wisdom to say, "Hey, these are things you need to watch out for because we've seen this happen in the past and it's going to happen again." Well, and Andy, thank the Lord for your heart's burden to mentor all these younger guys and travel to these churches, man, they couldn't have a better Paul to their Timothy. So man, thank you. And listen, thank you for this. I, th- I, I tend to be long winded. So I think we went over a little bit, but man, thank you so much for y- your kindness and having me on. I hope we can do this again, uh, real soon. And man, I, I hope our paths can cross, uh, in the future. Where, where are you based out of? So I'm in Tulsa. I've been in Tulsa, oh, you are in Tulsa? Yeah, okay. for the last uh, about 18 years now. And, wow. Uh, I was in Orlando for about five years. 
from 2000 to 2005, helping okay. uh, plan a church there. And then, uh, yeah, I have been in Tulsa for the last couple of decades. We love it here. Wow. Well, praise the Lord. We got a great voice there for the kingdom. So, man, this is wonderful. Thank you again, my brother, for the privilege of being with you and, and uh, for your kind and encouraging words. It's been an honor. Grace and peace to you. Hey, thanks for listening. Join me every Monday for new stories from the Christian music industry and beyond. If you want more content like this, along with a lot of great music, join me for Worship with Andy Christman, airing on 500 stations around the world every weekend. And when you get a sec, run over to my website, andychristman.net, for information about my professional vocal coaching and an incredible new resource for worship pastors called The Worship Table. See you next time on the One Degree of Andy podcast. One Degree of Andy, sponsored by Yellowbox. Yellowbox is a full-service creative agency and an extension of creative teams all across the nation. Whether you need a brand identity developed or a video team capturing your event, Yellowbox can help. They cover everything from web development and design to video production and strategy. Yellowbox comes alongside your team on whatever creative projects you might be working on to see them through to their fullest potential. If you'd like to know more about Yellowbox, follow them on social media at Hello Yellowbox or shoot them an email at hello at yellowbox.co.